So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 20. We are continuing our way through this gospel. And if you remember the, the context, what's happening in this chapter is uh, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, the great triumphal entry, coming in as, as king to rule. He goes into the temple. He drives out the money changers. He begins teaching. He is confronted by the religious leaders. Who gave you this authority to drive out the money changers? And then Jesus has more controversy with the religious leaders, what we looked at last week. And today, the, the controversy in the temple is continuing as Jesus is confronted by another group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. So again, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 20. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can find this passage in the bulletin. The, the whole passage is printed there. Uh, if you're watching online, you can just Google the passage or look in the, the bulletin at explorehopechurch.org there on the homepage. So again, Luke chapter 20. And I'll begin reading in verse 27. And there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers the first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we have sinful hearts. We want to look at things from our own perspective. We have our own blind spots, our own assumptions about reality. Lord, we pray that we can set those aside, that we would have the, the mind of Christ, the, the eyes of the Spirit. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear your word, to truly hear your word, not what we think it says, not what we want it to say ourselves, but what it says. Lord, we ask that, that you would do a work in our hearts through this passage, that your word is powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it cuts to the 
to the very heart of the matter, Lord. So I pray that this passage would cut deep into our hearts, that it would reside there, that it would grow and bear fruit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we work our way through this passage, and if, if you're taking notes, we're just going to be going through it verse by verse. So you can leave your Bible open, your bulletin open to be able to, to follow along. But you notice that, that Jesus is engaging with a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. And this is the first time that we've seen the Sadducees in the book of Luke. And if you've tracked with us, in our study of this book, you'll know that Jesus spent a lot of time engaging with another major sect of Judaism of the time, the Pharisees. And the, the Pharisees were the champions of the common person in ancient Israel. And it's not surprising that we've mostly seen the Pharisees because the Pharisees centered, centered their ministry in synagogues throughout the land. And they opposed Rome, they, they favored the traditions of, of Israel. But the Sadducees were the religious elite. They were the people who were in bed with the Roman officials. Uh, they held the majority on the Jewish assembly, the Sanhedrin, so they held a lot of political power. But you wouldn't have seen them much outside of Jerusalem. These were the, the urban, intellectual, ruling elites of the time. But Luke tells us something about these ruling elites that they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in resurrection. Because look at verse 27. It says that there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And Luke actually tells us the same piece of information again in his second book, the book of Acts, where Jesus, or um, sorry, the apostle Paul engaging about the work of Jesus with religious Jews, um, sees that there are both scribes, there's the scribes and Pharisees, there's the Sadducees, and so he tries to essentially pit them against each other. And this is the note in Acts 23, verse 8. It says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so you could say that the Pharisees then were the religious fundamentalists who opposed the, the ministry of Jesus, thought that they could work their way up to God through good works, and they were enemies of Jesus, but to an outsider, Jesus would have actually seemed like an ally of the Pharisees. Uh, to the Sadducees, he may have even seemed like if a Pharisaical rabbi himself, because they looked at him and said, hey, this person believes in angels, he believes in life after death, he believes in a and a future uh, resurrection from the dead. But the Sadducees, if the, if the Pharisees were the religious fundamentalists, the Sadducees were the pseudo-religious secularists. Uh, these are the people who didn't believe there's anything beyond this life. They would have professed belief in, in God. But since they rooted all of their hopes, all of their dreams in this life, they thought, well, why shouldn't we be engaged with the Roman authorities? Why not hold on to power? Why not center everything around this visible temple structure, which is why so much of the priestly class were part of the Sadducees? And so you, you think about the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
and you reflect on our current time, our modern world, and we actually see elements of their thought, not derived from them, but these two ideas, these two approaches to life in our modern world. That you see what you could call the, the leaven of the, the Pharisees in modern day religious fundamentalism that is opposed to the gospel, that is self-righteous and hypocritical and saying that you can make it to God through good works. It's saying place all of your hopes in man-made religious systems and rules. That is where you hope. But of course, I, I think that this leaven of the, the Pharisees is not the primary obstacle to the gospel that we see in our modern world in America. And yes, we see anti-gospel religion around the world, but the, the leaven of the Sadducees is dominant in the secular West. And it's this secularism that says that it's fine to believe in God, it's fine to have the moral teaching of Scripture, but that ultimately our hope and our focus should be on this life, that everything is, is centered here and now. And it's this secular perspective that we get in, in newspapers, in academia, in entertainment. This is what we're bombarded with constantly. Maybe not a direct denial of the reality of God, but this sense that what really matters is what goes on in this life, that we seek to be happy in the here and now, and that's what matters most of all. And in a way, the, the teaching of the Sadducees, uh, there's a seed of it that is similar to even what Karl Marx taught about religion. He said that the idea of the afterlife was just made up by uh, elites, by the ruling class to try to control the common people. Because if the common people believe in life after death, then they put all their hope there, and they don't work to change their world around them in the present life. And so he said that we need to throw aside any kind of belief in a life after death and focus on the present world. And you might say, well, I don't like Karl Marx, but maybe you agree with that fundamental idea. And it's the idea of, of deism that says that God is the clockmaker who winds up the world but then leaves and we're here to, to live on our, on our own or of agnosticism that says that we can't know, or atheism that denies the existence of God, or just an anti-supernaturalism that says that, that we shouldn't expect supernatural intervention in the natural world, that it's just natural processes. That is what dominates our experience. And maybe you say for yourself, I don't know what happens when I die. Or maybe you even say, it's impossible to know what happens when I die. That question is outside of the realm of empirical fact. And so we can speculate about life after death, but really, all you can do in life is just try to be a good person, try to make a difference in your life, <clears throat> try to, to live a good life now, and hope that it's enough, because and, and, and you just can't know if there's life after death. In a way, that's even what you see in the phrase YOLO, that, that people say you only live once. That, that in, a, in a weird way, <clears throat> that's what the, the Sadducees would have said. That, that's the, the slogan of the Sadducees, that you only live once. There's no resurrection. There's no life after death. This life is it. And so we have to be sure that we, that we live the kind of life that we need to live. Live it up. You only live once. 
But you say, well, why did the Sadducees then believe in an ancient form of YOLO that you only live once? And you can see the, the answer in the way that they start to engage with Jesus. <clears throat> they ask a question, but really their question is more of a statement of their view. Because they start off in verse 28, they say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And so they're starting off quoting the Old Testament. The Sadducees favored the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the, the books of Moses. And so they're trying to make a, a biblical argument, but they're, they're actually going to have a, an unbiblical conclusion, but they're using Scripture. And this is often the case where people will use the Bible to make an unbiblical point. And so they, they quote Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and 6. And I'll go ahead and read that from Deuteronomy. It says that if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband brother, her husband's brother, shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his deceased brother. That is the name, that, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so this is a practice that is called liverite marriage, liverite marriage. And it seems very strange in our modern world, uh, but listen to how uh, one commentary, it's actually notes in the, in the NET Bible, this is how they explain the practice that it provides for the widow in a society where a widow with no children to take care of her, for, of her would be reduced to begging. And it preserved the name of the deceased, who would be regarded as the legal father of the first son that proceeds from the marriage. Now, as strange as this is, if you were to go back to the Old Testament and read the book of Ruth, this is what the book of Ruth is about where Ruth's husband died, and so she's seeking this kind of a marriage with one of her husband's relatives, Boaz, in order to continue the name of her deceased husband. And there's much more that can be said about that. But this practice is what the Sadducees pick up on here in our text. So they take this background from the Old Testament, and then they try to basically do what philosophers would call a thought experiment. They say, if this is true, from the scripture, let's think about this. Verse 29, now there were seven brothers. The first brother took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, a woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And this definitely reminds me of the kind of discussion you would have in a college class or a college dorm room where, where people are raising all kinds of crazy uh, examples to try to disprove ideas that don't immediately seem relevant for life. And they lay out this very improbable scenario that a woman ends up marrying seven brothers. They all die she has no children. She dies, and it's, it's almost like a joke where they show up at the pearly gates, and then it's saying, who 
is going to be the husband. Will she have seven husbands in heaven? Or will she only have one? In the resurrection, how is this going to play out? And really what this is saying is that therefore, belief in the resurrection is completely absurd. This is what's called reductio ad absurdum, where you take somebody's argument and you try to take it to its logical conclusion. And when you take it to its logical conclusion, it's just completely absurd. It, it, it's something that no intelligent thinking person could believe. And that's what the Sadducees are saying, that any thinking intelligent person would realize that to believe in life after death, to believe in a resurrection is crazy. It's completely absurd off the face of it. But I wonder if that may be why some of you or some of your friends or your family reject Christianity. They, they look at it, they use the reductio ad absurdum, and they say Christianity is absurd, that if you take Christianity to its logical conclusion, that it doesn't make sense. And so they reject Christianity out of hand. And uh, I, this week, was looking at a, a forum, it's called uh, Quora, where people can pose questions and answers. And because I was interested just, are, are there discussions about pe what people think about Christianity and the absurdity of Christianity? Uh, and this was one of the questions that somebody posted. What do you find the most absurd about Christianity? And so you can imagine that whoever's asking that question probably has a an answer to that question themselves, just the way that they ask it. Uh, and many of the answers are, are not worth reading or even paying attention to, but one of them stood out to me. And there's a hostility to Christianity here, but I think it speaks to the way that people think of Christianity and the way they see it as absurd at its face. He says, the problem here is that no matter which one I focus on, I have to feel bad not pointing out all the other absurdities. I mean, all I have to do is keep reading the Bible from, from the start, and on every page will be something absolutely outrageous and absurd. However, to do your question some justice, I will talk about one particular absurdity. It's the idea that with his infinite wisdom, God Almighty couldn't figure out a better way to forgive sinners than to get his child tortured to death. This is both wrong and illogical, on so many levels. Now, as those who, who love the gospel, you hear that and, you, and it makes you recoil. But if we try to think about what he's, he's saying, there's an element that we can understand where he's, he's saying that when you look at the doctrine of the atonement, there's a strange aspect of it. There, it seems hard to believe on the surface. You take the doctrine of the Trinity. We can't wrap our minds around it. You take the the idea that, the, that God would send his son to suffer and die in our place. Is that absurd? Is that true? How do we think about it as modern people in a world of, of science and empirical reflection on reality? Is Christianity just a mess of absurdities, as this person thinks, or as the Sadducees think about the doctrine of the resurrection? And I think that that's where we have to be careful that sometimes when you look at something from one perspective, it can seem absurd. It can seem false. But then when you look at it from another perspective, you find out that it's actually true, that it is gloriously true. And I think that we can see this even in the world around us. And science says that 
light is a wave and a particle simultaneously in some mysterious way, or it behaves as both. It seems completely absurd, but it's where the data takes us that it seems true. It seems completely absurd. If you went 200 years ago and told people that if you split an atom, first they wouldn't even necessarily know what an atom is or believe in it. If you split an atom, you can cause an explosion so large that it can destroy a city. People would say, that is completely absurd. That is science fiction. That's ridiculous. But we know it's true. Or you take the idea that, that our planet is this ball of rock and gas with billions of people on it flying at incredible speeds suspended in space around a gigantic ball of fire with, a with fusion reactions at the center. And you say, that is also completely absurd. It seems ridiculous. How are we having a conversation right now as our planet is careening through space around a star? But yet we know that that's true. And so you set aside all of the seeming absurdities. Or take plate tectonics, that our continent is moving. We say, well, that's absurd. How can that much rock move? But we know that it's true. And you could keep going and going, that there are so many things that are true, that are reality, that if you looked at it the wrong way or if you didn't have all the information, could seem absurd at the surface. And that's how we can think about Christianity as well. That just as the Sadducees saw absurdity in the belief in life after death and the resurrection, so it can sometimes seem absurd to us, tragically absurd. But it's not tragically absurd that it is gloriously true when we look at it in light of the whole, when we trust God and his promises and his word. And that's what Jesus starts to show the Sadducees as our text continues in verse 34. Look there in your Bible. This is how Jesus answers it. And he, he starts off by refuting their assumptions. He, he says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And of course, in Scripture, we don't have that much about what life is like in the resurrection. What is our future hope like? Because it's, it's so beyond our experience. But Jesus here gives this important biblical window into the, the reality of the resurrection. And he shows that the, fair, the uh, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection because they weren't making an important distinction. A distinction between this age and the age to come that they assume that this age is going to be exactly like the age to come, that it's analogous in every way. But that, that the age to come in reality is going to be totally different than our current experience. And that's how we can think about the resurrection as well. Or maybe you could think about it like a butterfly and a caterpillar. I mean, if you didn't know somehow that butterflies come from caterpillars, that would be another absurdity. You would say, no, there's no way that that caterpillar can turn into that beautiful butterfly. The caterpillar crawls. It's brown or green. It can't fly. Butterflies can fly. But yet, the, the key is to know that what goes into the cocoon is not the same as what comes out of the cocoon. 
And that's the same with the reality of the resurrection. That if we try to explain it by our current experience here and now, we're going to get it wrong. It's going to seem absurd. But when we see the difference, then it will begin to make sense. And you say, well, what are the differences then? Well, look at some of them that, that Jesus outlines. He says that in this present age, people marry and are given in marriage. But he says that in the, the age to come, there will be no marriage. He says that there won't be death. There will be no need for, for procreation, for the continuance of the human race. He, he says that we'll be like angels. Not that we'll be angels, but we'll be like angels, equal to angels, in being sinless, in having life that where we we're not going to die, where life continues with God forever in his glory. And therefore, you could say that, that marriage, the human institution of marriage, is temporary. It's for this present age, and it will not stretch into the age to come. And this has implications for how we think about marriage here and now, how we think about romantic relationships. I mean, my daughter loves princess stories, and I read a lot of princess stories to her, and they always end, and they got married, and they lived happily ever after. And there's something about that, as we think about human marriage, that seems very satisfying, that that's the end of the story. That's the goal. They get married, and they live happily ever after. And, and that's true, that marriage is a wonderful institution. It is instituted by God for human good, for human flourishing, that he told humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He, he says that they shall leave their fathers and their mothers and hold fast and become one flesh. That that's the, the promise that we see offered in the, 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 the glory of, of marriage. But though human marriage is good and ordained by God, it's not ultimate. It's not the final end of the human story. That the ultimate end of the story and the reason that the the story of they got married and lived happily ever after is, resonates so much in the human heart is that the final end of the human story is the marriage supper of the Lamb where, where the church is presented to, to Christ as the spotless uh, bride. And, and what we see in human marriage then is this signpost pointing to something greater than itself, to this final reality. And then when the final reality comes, the signpost is no longer necessary, that something far better has arrived. And so in light of that, we have to be careful about idolizing, making an idol of human marriage in this life. And sometimes it's married people who can make an idol of marriage in this life, where everything is about the marriage, everything is about the, the spouse, where that's where all of the hopes are rooted. All of the promises for life are in that relationship. And if something goes wrong in that relationship, the fundamental element of life is, is lost. Or people put so much pressure on their spouse to make them happy, to fulfill them every way, to be the ultimate relationship that they end up destroying the relationship because... We, we tend to destroy the idols that we worship. And when we idolize marriage and we idolize our spouse, we end up destroying our spouse in the process and destroying ourselves. That, that idols always bring death in the end. 
But of course, it's not just married people who can idolize human marriage. It can be the, the same thing with those who are single. That those who are single can sometimes feel the pressure to get married because what our society says is they got married and they lived happily ever after. That you can't be happy, you can't be complete, you can't be a full person unless you get married. That that is the way to be a true, fulfilled person. But we know that marriage, as great as it is, is not ultimate. And the only sinless human being who ever lived, our Lord Jesus Christ, didn't get married in his human life. That, that he was yet completely fulfilled, a completely full person. And the reason is, is that he knew his, his ultimate relationship to his father. And so if you have the opportunity to get married, if God opens that door, that's wonderful. But for every single one of us, whether you're married, not married, dating, single, no matter what your relationship status is, that, that the ultimate relationship is our relationship to Christ, first and foremost, because it is our covenant relationship to him that will endure beyond this life into the life to come, where our relationships here are temporary. And, and that might be even hard to hear if you're in a happy marriage. You can't imagine not being married. But of course, we know that any joy of marriage here in this life is just a foretaste of something far more beautiful and far more glorious to come. And so you can always know that the, the best things are to come in Christ if we're repenting and trusting in him for salvation. But now, getting back to our, our text, Jesus has refuted the first part of their argument, showing that they didn't understand the difference between this age and the age to come. But then he presents this, this positive case for the resurrection in verse 37. He, it says, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. And so saying that they tried to use Moses to disprove the resurrection, he says, Even Moses shows this in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And of course, this is written at a time where you didn't have verses and chapters in the Bible. And so Jesus is referring to Exodus chapter 3. He says, you know, the passage about the bush, where Moses, after being raised in the house of Pharaoh and then killing a servant of Pharaoh to protect one of his countrymen, a fellow Jew, from uh, abuse by the overseer, uh, fled out into the desert when it was discovered by Pharaoh. And he ends up in the desert coming to a mountain. There he sees a burning bush. He approaches it to see what is going on. And then he hears the voice of God speaking from the bush to him, that he's on holy ground, that he takes the sandals off his feet and approaches in this reverent awe of, of the presence of God, this God who is a consuming fire, who is present with his people, yet um, stands independent of them. And God declares his identity as Yahweh, the great I am, the one who is, who was, who is to come. And Jesus says that this passage, the story of the bush, proves decisively the doctrine of the resurrection. And you say, well, that's maybe not where I would turn to prove the doctrine of the, the resurrection. So how does Jesus draw this out of this Old Testament text? Well, what he's saying is that 
God is a God who makes promises, that he made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He promised them land. He promised them an inheritance. But they didn't see the fruition of the promises in their life. They didn't take hold of the things that God had promised. So had God lied to them? Was it false? Was it, was it really not a promise to them? And if God is the God of the patriarchs, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if he keeps his promises, then he's not the God of a bunch of dead people who have ceased to exist. Is that how God is going to define himself? I'm the God of people who no longer exist and who never really experienced the promises that I gave them. That, that, that itself would be absurd. And so for Jesus, he says that, of course, then, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are alive, and he will fulfill his promises to them because he always keeps his promises because he is the covenant-keeping God. And maybe today, as you reflect on, on our life, our world, you say, I'm like the Sadducees. I'm not sure about the reality of the, the resurrection that you maybe agree with what, what they did in the 19th century. It's called Protestant liberalism. It was a movement in 19th century Europe where theologians got together and said that the Bible is not acceptable to modern man. And so we're going to pick and choose what's true, what's not true. We're going to construct a religion that is acceptable to modern scientific man, emphasizing the, the universal fatherhood of God, the universal brotherhood of, of man, and the, the, the call to, to be good and to do good in our world in the here and now. And maybe you say, well, that sounds good. But really, if you think about it, that only sounds good if life is good, if your life is going well, if you're in the upper echelon of society like the Sadducees. Sure, if you hold the keys of power in society, why not root your hope in this life? It seems like a good gamble. But when life is hard, when you face suffering, when there's pain, when there's death, when, when life is cut short, when it seems like life isn't giving you everything that, that you hoped it would, are you going to root your hope and your promises in this life? Are, is this where you can find it? And if so, then really it's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die because this life is all there is, and this life doesn't promise that much for billions of people throughout history. If this life is all there is, then the human story is a tragedy. The human story is not something to celebrate. It is the greatest tragedy we could imagine if this life is all there is. But God is a God who makes promises. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He makes promises to us. He says that for those who love me, all things work together for good. And are those promises true? Well, when you're suffering, when you're facing hardship, you say, it's not true. There's no way that this could work together for good. But it's just because you're not at the end of the story yet. You haven't gotten to the end. Because if, if our promise is that all things work together for good is rooted here in this life, it's not going to pan out in every case. It's going to seem like a lie. It's going to seem like God isn't true. But God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He is the God who keeps his promises, and that the promises he makes that all things will work together for good, that he'll never leave us, forsake us, that that promise will hold true because of the reality of the resurrection. And you say, well, then how can you share in that resurrection? Verse 35, Jesus talks about those who will be considered worthy 
to obtain the resurrection. You say, how would you become worthy? How are you counted worthy of the resurrection? And, and Jesus is not saying that we are worthy because we've done the right things, because we've worked ourselves up to God. But we can be counted worthy because Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross. That when he was nailed to the cross, breathed his last breath, said that it is finished and was buried in the tomb. At that moment, if the Sadducees had been right, then Christianity would be a joke. It would be absurd. It would be a tragedy. Good Friday would not be good. It would be the, the greatest travesty because he died and that was the end. But the greatest way to believe in the reality of the resurrection is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he rose from the dead. The death itself could not hold him. And when he rose from the dead, he was seen by eyewitnesses. The scripture says more than 500 people at one time. So as much as we can prove the resurrection from Exodus chapter 3, the ultimate proof of the resurrection is seen in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the more we reflect on the reality of his resurrection, the more we see that the promise is also for us, that if we have repented, if, we're, if we've trusted in him, if we are united to Christ, that when we pass through those waters of death, when we pass from this life to the other, we have the promise of life to come. That is, has analogy in certain ways to our life, but is far more glorious, far more beautiful, far more incredible than we could ever begin to imagine, ever begin to wrap our minds around. And that is a promise that we have in Christ, that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Let's pray.